Walk in Your Excellence. I'm your host, Sean Larry, and thanks for listening into this week's episode of Walk in Your Excellence. As an author, I believe that words are power. On the other hand, as an educator of black and brown students in one of America's most marginalized cities, I sometimes find myself educating my students on the nuances of code switching, which is a hard line to toe because you want students to value their way of speaking and validate them as acceptable as well. June Jordan, a Jamaican poet, educator, and activist who was known as the poet of the people during the 70s and 80s, she felt strongly about the writer's use of black English. And she also encouraged young black writers to use that idiom in their writing. Toni Morrison described her as a a writer who blasts the darkness of confusion with relentless light. Alice Walker describes her as brave. Today's guest is exactly those things. I have a dream that one day... This nation will rise up. Someone who is brave, who has used his words to blast out the darkness of confusion out with relentless light. He is someone who speaks and lives his truth every day. This special guest, a good friend of mine, Darnell Moore, is a writer, educator, cultural worker, and a critic. He is an editor-at-large at Cassius and formerly a senior editor and correspondent at Mike. He co-founded You Belong, a social good company focused on the development of diversity initiatives, received a humanitarian award from the American Conference on Diversity for his advocacy work in Newark. His anti-racist, feminist, and queer of color advocacy work has been featured in Ebony Magazine and the Huffington Post. He was appointed as the inaugural chair of a committee by former mayor of Newark, Cory Booker. I am honored. It is a privilege to welcome my very good friend, Darnell Moore. How's it going, Darnell? It's going well. That bio just, oh, that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was you. It's oh real. I just started melting my chair. That was yeah. sweet. Thank you. Of course. I am inspired by your story. And, you know, I'm, I am not only just a friend, but a huge fan. And so um, I want to just jump right into this conversation because there's so much to learn from you. First, let's ground us in some history. Tell us who Darnell Moore is. Open up a window into your soul, your childhood for us. Sure. I am a child of Camden, New Jersey, and I was born in Camden during an era when um, it was touted as the most violent Mm -hmm. and most economically um, distressed, disenfranchised urban city in the country. I'm a child um, of Diane Moore. Diane had me. My mom had me at 16. My father, Grafton, who's passed last year, had me at 15. So. I was born to children um, who, and this is during the time of Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. When Reagan was like calling our black parents, particularly those who had us young, welfare queens. Wow. Um, and this is important for me to ground my history in my place and my people okay. um, because it largely informs who I am in the world and what I do. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I turned to activism and organizing and using my words or whatever gifts I have. Mm-hmm. To, to work against injustice is because it's what I grew up in the midst of. I grew up with yeah. violences happening all around me, not just the violence that we see on the streets, our people gunning down each other, but the violence of the state, mm. um, the violence of, of institutions, mm-hmm. whether that be the church or, or, or law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much who I am. My people, I love, I come from a family where no one ever went without. That is, I don't care what bad you did. Mm-hmm. Um, the week before, even that bad person would never be put on, put on the street. If we had to, like, crowd in the living room, two yeah. people sleeping on the couch, somebody sleeping on the floor, somebody sleeping on the steps, mm-hmm. um, that's what we had to do. And that informs my politics. Yeah. I don't believe in disposing of black people. I love it. Um, I don't believe in letting, I don't care what we do. I believe that we ought to be there for one another. Mm-hmm. And that's who I am. I mean, I'm a writer now. Yeah. I, I'm a media maker. Okay. I work for the largest black 
uh, media company in the country, yep. I1 Digital. Yep. Cash is his home to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything I do is is grounded in my love for for my folk, um, yeah. my folk literally in Camden and my folk across the diaspora. Yeah, that's good, man. What an intro. I want to I want to hear more a little bit about your parents, right? Because you you mentioned activism and welfare queens and growing up during that era. Did you see any like signs of activism in your parents? Interestingly enough, I always say, you know, I also am co-managing editor and partner of of a media brand company called The Feminist Wire, which is strange. Okay. People always like How'd you get involved with that? Right. Um, far before I knew and even used terms like feminism, or we hear these involved terms now like intersectionality, mm-hmm. before I knew about June Jordan, Audre Lorde, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, mm-hmm. all these feminists that we talk about, I saw my mama struggle against you know, the fist that was coming at her, being swung by my dad, mm. the fist of the state, like having to literally, I remember walking with her to the welfare office one time, and the door to the building literally, it was a glass door, she didn't see it, hit her in the head. And it was such a striking, like, metaphor right. for me, like what it meant for her to have to drop out of school, um, to raise me in a tenth grade. My dad dropped out of eighth grade, and wow. she had to rate like so. She did not get her GED until she was fifty. Wow! After I had already gone off and gotten three degrees, so in so many ways, her life represents for me the. St- the, the sort of path that black women typically have to take, mm-hmm. the invisible labor they have to do as our mothers, our sisters, our aunties, our grandmamas, and the work they have to do to labor to make sure that everybody else is right in the community. So politically, no, I don't think she's never raised her fist and she wasn't out on the front lines, right. but her life, what she lived every day represented to me the type of black womanhood that goes so under-celebrated right. in our country. I love it. See, and, and I'm like I didn't want to be like my... I always say, you know... My first inclination was don't be like your dad. Mm-hmm. Don't disparage or harm women. That was a cop out. That's like a low bar. Right. She, though, I think when I think about my mom, the reframe was be the type of human being um, that, that represents the best of who your mama was. Oh, cool. um, and not only the best of who she was, but the type of human being that can uplift her and celebrate her and right. name her and make sure that her livability is, is a thing, yeah. that she's well. Um, so she taught me everything I know yeah. about love, everything I know about radical love, especially. Nice. And shout outs to her. I mean, getting your GED at 50, that's no easy feat. And so like I, I, I and you had already had gone off to do multiple degrees. And it makes me want to question, like, was that was education like a value? Was that something that mom pushed? It was. And it also, though, like I was a dreamer as a kid. OK. I mean, when you grow up looking at people die and are, mur- you know, murdered and they're, they're being murdered by a variety of factors. Mm-hmm. You know, we turn on each other as black folk living in urban distressed countries, not necessarily because, you know, we want to get rid of each other so badly. Right. I often say we do to each other what the system does to us. Yep. Um, and that's yep. important to recognize, right? Particularly, all that to say, I grew up into these conditions. Like, there was violence in the home. My father was abusive to my mom. There was violence on the streets. Mm. Um, we didn't have a lot. We didn't have, I grew up, I was in Camden Public Schools, which at the time was horrendous. Yeah. Um, Great teachers, under-resourced though, Mm -hmm. dot, dot, dot. And for me, I dreamt my way, like in my dreams, Mm -hmm. I saw a a community or another world, the type of world and the type of life I wanted to live. Education for me was a route to that. Okay. You know, I was just a nerd. I was a nerd as a kid. (laughs) Like I loved school. I mean, I was a dude at 14 who found a private school in a phone book. This is like before Google. Like right, This is like right. when you have the big ass like, <laughs> yellow. yellow pages. <laughs> yeah. And I went searching for like a school that had the word friends in it because I knew friend schools were like really good schools or whatever. Gotcha. And called it, called the school up, 
I faked and act like I was my mom on the phone. <laughs> my voice was real high. And I had them send an application. I filled out my mother's parent portion of the application. Wow. I filled it out, got an interview, took a bus, two buses from Camden all the way to the suburbs, about an hour and a half away, interviewed, got into the school. My mom was like, I don't know how you think you're paying for this. Right. But there was something about, like, I, I wanted not, it wasn't just getting out mm-hmm. of my city, but it was about gathering the tools yeah. I needed um, so that I could, one, be beneficial and of service to my family and to my community, but going to go get some tools so I can come back and also in, in some way help to make the communities in which I came from better. Yeah, I love it. Wow, what a mission, man. It sucks because there are so many kids who still are like in those shoes. That story that you just described, so many kids uh, have this desire, not so much to get out, but they want more so that they can give back more. Uh, and so I appreciate that about you. Like I said before, I'm not only a, a friend, but a huge fan. And you talk and speak about a lot of things that I'm super passionate about. And one of them that resonates with me is is just this idea of black masculinity, right? Uh, a few years back, you spoke, I believe, at the center of... Um, uh, of men and masculinities, uh, and and a few weeks ago, I actually rewatched your clip, and you were speaking. I think the title of it was uh, "The Shapings of Black Masculinity." You remember yeah, that? I do. I want to talk about that. How do you define black masculinity, and what does it mean, you know, to to sort of be a black man? Yeah, and I'll try to be super quick because um, everything that we come to know mm-hmm. about manhood, about masculinity, I think we should accept it as things that were created. Mm-hmm. For us, like these are not fixed things. Gotcha. Um, these ideas that we believe that they become gospel to us. Like to be a real man is to be what strong. Right. It's to be tough. You play basketball. Yeah. Like social um, constructs. These are these things have been created. Yeah. By society gotcha. at large, and they are sustained through our institutions, mm-hmm. whether that's your family, your church, businesses, and so on. So for me, um, it's important when we talk about manhood and masculinity to not understand these things as fixed. Mm. Like. They're just not. Yeah. Um, so I am more invested now as a person who's identified as a black man, who I self-identifies as a black man, and not just trying to figure out what I need to do to mm. be a good black man. I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a good human. Mm. In many ways, masculinity is too tight a cage mm. for so many of us. You can't be free in a cage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. Like, if, if when you're born... Um, the first thing you're told, or even before, think like I, and I, we talked about this, yeah. like before you're even born, a parent goes to the doctor to get to determine the gender or sex of the child. Right. Doctor tells parent, "Oh, you are having a boy." Mm-hmm. Far before that child is born into the world, yep. parent goes to the store, paints the room blue, puts basketball and footballs in the room. Um, have bas- I mean, that's basketball hoops, pictures of like the mm-hmm. Sixers and whoever the right. football teams are, <laughs> karate chops and all right. this other stuff that's happening all around. The, the child never has an opportunity to name on their own term the type of person they want to be. They that's never powerful. said, I, I don't yeah. like basketball. I don't want to do football. I actually want to do ballet. Right. So like we assign all of these rules to people's lives mm-hmm. in ways that I think cage us. And lock us up. Wow. So, and black masculinity, masculinity at writ large, we talk about racism and how, like, you know, we come to think bad ideas and negative ideas about blackness. But gender is another thing that was constructed by, you know, colonizers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's fancy way of saying for me. I think the better question is, what might we do to be better human beings? 
Wow. What can I do so that the kids that are coming behind me, mm-hmm. whether they're, you know, just, you know, defined, or described, identified as boys or girls, can live their very best life, can mm-hmm. be their authentic self. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's scary because these gender rules gives us con- sense of control. Yeah. And that, that doesn't do anything for the person who's caged. Wow. So, you know, we talk about abolition and getting rid of a prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. like the walls that's caging our people. We need to get rid of the prison that is gender, too. Um, that doesn't mean it can't be redemptive. It doesn't mean that I can't think about, you know, other. Th- so, you know, I made a point, like, at a certain age, like, I'm going to wear pink. Right. You know, I- I'm going to wear a, a, a kilt. Yeah, 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 nonconforming. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I don't know if, if if masculinity is a thing that we ought to redeem. Gotcha. I think we ought to be striving to be better human beings. Yeah. Now, I know, like, as a black man in America and, and achieving what you've achieved, in your, in your line of work, talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges that you face and how you how you overcame them. I overcame challenges a lot. Well, you know, the, the challenges were, were <laughs> there were a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you grew, I grew up without, my family grew up poor, mm-hmm. working poor. Um, we lacked wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a challenge. Growing up without money, it meant that, like, when I got to college, I was doing things like right. I didn't, you know, I had to eat peanut butter and jelly and crackers sometimes. Right, right, right. Um, it, it meant that uh, outside of any type of scholarships that I could get, it meant that I had to I acquired mad loans. Mm. Um, but also growing up, uh, this goes back to what I was saying too: to love myself fully as I am, mm-hmm. to love my black skin my dark brown skin yeah in a in a black in an all black mostly black city where we st- we still had cut like colorism was a thing yeah yeah i was called blackie right it's like to love my big full lips to love my nose mm-hmm. um to love the quirkiness that i was to love my intelligence to yeah. love um the, the sort of sense of wonder that i had mm-hmm. to love all of the various ways that i loved and 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 was attracted to people in the world mm-hmm. like that was a struggle. I, I think that was the biggest one. Like, how do you love the thing that's been denied love the whole time? Mm. How do you love the thing that you've been told to hate? That's real. Um, after that's you've real. been told one too many times you're going to hell because you got a little swish in your walk, or mm-hmm. which has nothing to do with who you're having sex with, right? Right. Like, after you've been told one too many times that niggas like you don't survive too long in cities like this because, one, you're either going to get killed by a gun, the police officer's gun, and then after that, you're, t- you're liable. You're probably going to take, your- take yourself out by your own hands. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those things were manifesting in my life. Okay. And how did I make it? Because of my people, because of my family. Um, they-, they helped me down. They- these are the people that my mom, when I came out to her and said, um, I set her down in my office I like I had to tell you, I, you know, yeah. I sent her a text like I need to talk to you, and um, she came, mm-hmm. and I was scared to tell her that um, that I was gay. She said, uh, "What do you want to talk about?" And I was like, um, I, "I'm a little nervous." She's like, "Are you sick?" Right. And I was like, "Nah." She's like, "You have HIV AIDS?" I was right, like, "Nah." Right. You got cancer? I was like, "No." She's like, "Well, what is?" It? I said, "I have a boyfriend." And she's like, "Oh, I knew that already." <laughs> 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 I was like, "What?" She's like, "Oh, I've been knowing that forever." Like, mamas always know, and you are my son. Yeah, and I love you. And if if folk, I don't care what it, the church mm-hmm. can't love you, get rid of it. That's yeah. what she said to me. Now, this is the same black woman because we think black people one are more homophobic than others. We right. think black folk who don't got a certain type of education are less progressive, are backwards. For sure, my mama, who is from Camden, who got her GED at fifty. 
has a progressive politic mindset that yeah. trumps your president Trump. Right, right. You understand <laughs> what I'm saying? So like when she said that to me, that's represent that's that's a perfect way, I think, a representative of her. Mm-hmm. She loved me regardless, whether I was quote unquote successful or not, um, whether I went off to get degrees or not, my mama would have still been there, like, you are my son. And I love you. It doesn't matter if I got on good clothes, if I talk good English, yeah. if I do any of this. And I come from a people for whom that's the case. Yeah. Um, they love us because we exist. Yeah, that's And powerful. that's why I made it, like, legit. Like, I, I ended up depressed for a big part of my 20s. Yeah. Largely because I was unable to look at myself in the mirror and love the reflection that was staring back at me. That's real. But she's helped me to do that. She's helped me to love myself. Man, that's real. I mean, there are so many aspects of your story that definitely resonates with me. And you, as you know, I'm a principal in Newark, and you've done a lot of advocacy work in Newark, so you're very familiar. I just want your insight on this. I, I watch ninth graders, you know, come in somewhat immature, somewhat self-centered. You know, when you're a 14-year-old boy, like, nothing else matters except, like, what your friends think. And so they search. They're on this, like, journey to identify, like, who they are. And then I watched them grow to be seniors who are a little bit more confident, ready to enter into the world. Uh, But one thing I see is, like, it pains me that the marginalized journey of some of our young men is, like, battling with their own sexual identity and what that means to be like a high school young boy who doesn't know like what they like or really knows what they like but is scared and just recently a couple weeks ago i believe in like maybe october a 14 year old transgender student in newark i don't know if you heard about this um was beaten and it was on videotape in the hallway at Eastside high uh and I, I really advocated to get the student uh, once the, the student left into my school because I do believe that I'm trying to build a, a more inclusive environment, but that's hard. And I mean, I'm at a loss. I just want your opinion or thoughts on what can schools do to be more inclusive environments for members of the LGBT community? Yeah, I worked for a big part of the work that I did in Newark was precisely around this, and mm-hmm. that was trying to create more inclusive, safer environments for, for young people. Mm-hmm. Um, a big issue is we can have all of the language um, and our, our missions can be all very clear. You mm-hmm. know, like that we are safe and inclusive environment. But what I learned was so many of the educators in charge of the care of our young people carry these ideologies with them into the classroom. Facts. I trained hundreds of teachers who, would, after sitting through hours of training, would say things like, but my religion says. Mm. And I would say, well, when you come through the door of this school. Right. When you're paid by the state to come and teach these kids in here, you're going to have to figure out how to leave your theology yeah. at the door. Yeah. Otherwise, go get a job at the church. Yeah. Because every child in this school has a right to be seen as human, mm-hmm. as deserving of care, um, as deserving of safety. Yeah. So a big part of it, it, it I think it's, it's, it's multi, like multifold, and that is, um, one, engaging teachers in mandatory, not even professional development. Right. <laughs> I think that's too small. Like that's too low, low of a bar. Yeah. Um, there needs to be ongoing, sustained conversations with educators around the role, around their role, in mm-hmm. making sure that all people, all young people, deserve safe environments. Policies also need to be instituted. Yeah. Um, yeah. Until we're at the point where cultures, school cultures can change, we need to hold people accountable to a set of policies. Mm-hmm. And if those policies are broken, they don't need to be teaching. I mean, I really do believe it. That That's where I am with it. Like, yeah. if you can't teach everybody, get out. But also, I think uh, we need examples. And, you know, in Newark right now is also the Hetrick Martin Institute's after-school program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I helped to develop that there. 
And part of what we wanted to do was to give young people in Newark as access to, to a space where they could exist and be, regardless of how they identify. So they need safe spaces, too. Yeah. Um, and the type of school environment that you're creating, I think, is, is one way to do that. Yeah. Uh, but we also need parent education. That's, so, that's a missing link for sure. You know, if you even if you feel safe in school, but you go home to a mama or daddy or, or caregiver who's putting you on the street, mm-hmm. and that happens, um, what good are we doing? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a you know a wraparound approach to, for sure. to systemic change we need. Nice. Well, thanks. Um, thank you for for giving me that advice. And I heard a couple things that I want to touch on. I just heard you say systemic, so I want to go there. And I heard you say a lot about policies. As you know, like my my little brother was recently murdered a couple weeks ago, and while he wasn't like a, a a victim of like police violence, right? I do believe that he is someone who our system has failed, right? As a young black man, uh, twenty seven years old, you know, wanted we grew up in the same household, right? And so we had we were offered the same opportunities, we had a level, level playing field, but still like schools schools failed him in a large sense. And I know you've, you've published some, some work on like black boys um, being under the gun and an op-ed piece, I think that you did in Ebony at some point, where you talk a little bit about the structural racism and institutionalized barriers that we face as black men. Tell us, like, what do you think it's gonna take for our world to move away from the structural racism that exists? <laughs> a new world. A new world. <laughs> I mean, let me think. I mean, we got revolution as an option. Right, right. <laughs> That's a, it's a good question. It's a grand one. I, I, I remain wholly, okay, I put my faith in, in black people's ability mm. to create a type of world where all of us, and I mean especially those who exist on the edges of the margins, might be free. I, I, I am less confident in America as a project mm. to, do, to, to be able to do anything other than what it was intended to do. America, the United States of America, was built on chattel slavery. Yeah. It was built under a, on a frame of ideas that did not see anyone except for white men, really, um, as full human beings and then white women as something close to that. America as a project was founded on a bunch of poetic po- po- philosophy, right? Like right. the land of the free and the brave. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, if you read all of our stuff. But, it isn't a, it, but it's a project that's been wholly contradictory and, and paradoxical mm-hmm. and, and founded really on principles that we upheld through quote-unquote founding fathers, white slave-owning yep. masters. Yep. What do you do with lies? So that being said, though, I think change comes through the lives and the work of of those who exist on the underside of power, mm, mm-hmm. and what do, what 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 do we need to do in, in order to make uh, to make a better world? Besides, I don't know. I mean, some people say we need abolition, and that is to reimagine. Abolition is not just a sort of a tearing down of the the world and the systems as we understand them. And by systems, I mean police forces right. um, and prisons. Uh, a judicial system that is wholly discriminatory mm-hmm. also in its practices against so many of us, um, against an economic system. But abolition truly, and folk like scholars like Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, a name I'll throw out there, often says abolition is not just about a removal of all the bad shit, yeah. the things that don't yeah. work. It's about imagining what better we need to create in the place of the bad. Yeah. So part of the work is f- dreaming. Mm. 
and for us to utilize, because you know we can name the problems, we can talk about everything that happens for in our sure. communities, right? Sure. Shortage of food, the fact that many of us live in neighborhoods where the only thing you can get is like Chinese food, yeah. chicken wings and fries for five dollars, but yeah. you go to a place and a kale because you know now they got kale and black, you know, right? Like, that's the thing, <laughs> right? Like kale is like ten dollars, right? <laughs> so you you demonize or are you sort of like fr- you know criticize black parents and say, oh y'all taking y'all kids to get this this food from these fast food places yeah. without talking about the economic constraints mm-hmm. that might make a make it so that a black mama or daddy got to get their kid a five-piece chicken wing. Yeah. Because the Whole Foods that they just opened in Newark, first of all, damn sure, probably won't let you through the door. Yeah. And when you get through the door, they're probably following you around. And when you get to the cash register yeah. to pay for that kale, yeah. because kale is a thing, you may not have <laughs> the money to afford that. These are like the systems I'm talking about. For sure. So we can name that, but what do we need in its place? Yep. Right. Yeah. Like I, if I if I don't want police in my neighborhood, what do I need to do, do. Yeah. yeah, to ensure that somebody is safe? So I think right now, yes, we need to disrupt, to name what's wrong, to protest. Um, but we also need to dream. And by dream, I mean to to labor together to figure out what we need in the place of the shit that's not working for us. Yeah. And how we can build that together. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you said that. And the reason I asked that question is because I think like even within our media, we are we have been like socialized to see racism as like on an individualized basis, and like the media tells a very distorted vision for what racism is versus like really digging deep and understanding like mass incarceration, understanding gentrification, housing segregation, like all those things are things that are strategically placed upon us as black people that prevent us from excelling. So so thanks for sharing those thoughts. I'm interested in, I read something online where you mentioned gay in a black space and black in a gay space. Mm. And I want to hear like how do those two phrases dif- differ? They're very, they're very much intersecting. I, so, to, that piece um, was for a cover story I did for the Advocate. Okay. And um, I wonder if I would use that term now, Poss- mm. possibly. But what I was saying there was, I feel more safe in my neighborhood of Bed Stuy mm-hmm. as a black, gay, queer, whatever, however identified person than I do in gay, in like Greenwich Village. Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Now, that, that, I mean, I should sort of nuance that a bit. The reason why I feel safer, quote unquote, is because of my gender presence. I mean, so I'm, I'm afforded safety because I can walk down. I'm, not, I'm a man. People see me, they see a man, they right. see a beard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be quite different if I was femme presenting. Yep. Um, if my gender presentation was different. Okay. Not everybody, uh, so I'm speaking for myself. That right. is not true for everybody. Some folk would say something very different. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to get at for me is the way that black Black people who also identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or what have you, or gender nonconforming, exist in an intersection that you just cannot get out of. And mm. it's an intersection where like cars are coming from every direction. Yeah. So it's possible you can go with the rain, the folk on Pride, they got the rainbow flag, right, right. and they still turn around and call you a nigga. Yeah. Yeah. That's just what it is. And I've come across some of the most racist people I know carry rainbow flags. Mm. So let's just say that. Wow. Um, so it talk, so that to me it it, get, it it is a sort of signification of wow. the limitations of their of their understanding of what um, freedom actually means. Yeah. Um, very much deep, like drenched in a type of whiteness, white liberalism that is just problematic. On the other hand, you know, I've been also, you know, I 
been a part of the movement for Black Lives and and helping to sort of develop the Black Lives Matter uh, global network. Mm-hmm. And I remember Black folks saying, uh, "We'll say Black Lives Matter and then Trans Lives Matter." And I remember so many dudes would hit me up like, "That's you're de- you're moving us away from the that that's not what we talk about here." Wow. And I'm like, "Wait, wait, really? wait. Well, you're talking when I say Black people and Black Lives Matter, I'm saying all well, yeah. Black lives. So this idea that racial uplift, yeah." It's only about it's, making sure that black men ain't shot down in the fuck. Yeah. I'm sorry about the cuss, but like yeah, shot down cool. in the street. Like your black radical politic ain't radical if the only way you still understand black radical liberation mm. is on some old school yeah. patriarchal stuff from the past. No, this is not like Bayard Rust and Diane Nash like 2.0. Right. Right. This is a generation where we're saying every black person, sex workers, undocumented people, mm-hmm. women especially, mm-hmm. women if they're cisgender or transgender, young people, all these folk matter. Yeah. And we're going to fight for all of them. So, you know, we exist in this intersection. And I think, though, it on one hand, while it can be a dangerous place to exist, yeah. it also allows you to have a sharper analysis. You can't just have a, you know, these are multivariable problems we have and they cannot be fixed with single variable solutions. You yeah. can't tell me you out here trying to be free when the only thing you care about are issues rela- related to black men. Yeah. You understand? Or you can't tell me you're trying to be free when all you care about are gay people that look that's, that's white. Yeah. If you if you out here for rainbow flag and I don't see you marching when one of our people get shot down, sit your ass down. Facts. You're not, and, and on the other hand, if you got a Black Lives Matter sign but you can't stand for a woman who's been sexually assaulted, yeah. or you can't speak up when a Me Too movement is blossoming, mm-hmm. or you can't talk about a black LGBT young person who's homeless in the street, yeah. then you need to sit down. Yeah. Wow. Ah uh, man, I, I can listen to you talk all day, brother. Right. <laughs> like, wow, so amazing. Um, well, I, I mean, I want to close out right now, but sure. I but before we do, you have an upcoming book, yes. No Ashes in the Fire. Without spoiling it, right? Don't spoil it. Give us a snippet, like make us want to buy this book. Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Well, y'all should buy it because we're gonna buy it anyway. <laughs> so I shouldn't have said that. Just talk about it. <laughs> Um, but it's a story about, a, it's a coming of age story, a memoir and mm-hmm. social commentary um, about me, a black boy coming up of age, mm-hmm. in the age of AIDS, in the age of hip hop, yeah. yeah. in a city that was named one of the worst in the country, but it's really about finding beauty in the ashes, really. Yeah. Um, so I love that. Yeah. I love that visualization, man. I can't wait to get it. I hope you all it. And it's coming out in May, right? Yes, May 29th. Oh, May 29th. Um, what do you see yourself in 10 years? Hopefully alive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully alive. Um, so alive and surrounded by the people I love, my family, mm-hmm. um, continuing to do what I do, and that is using whatever gifts are at my disposal mm-hmm. for the plight of like, and liberation sounds so passe, it sounds so cliche. Mm-hmm. I would say, um, I imagine a world and community in 10 years that I'm living in where it's like, my, and I talk about this in my book, mm-hmm. like my grandparents' home, you know, everybody's in the living room. And I don't care how small the pot is with the food in it, everybody going to eat a piece. Yeah. And that's what I want. I want family like that in 10 years. I love it. Hopefully living in South Africa. Yeah. The yeah. Wow. Uh, I don't you'll, know. You'll maybe working there. as a barista and writing a book or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want that same that same dream, man. So, um, lastly, Darnell, I, I want you to tell tell us how how do you walk in your excellence every day? You saved the hardest question for last. Yeah. <laughs> how do I walk in my excellence every day? Um, I remind myself whose I am. Yeah. 
and 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 by that like i remember that i'm not here like the universe spirit mm-hmm. god our ancestors every day i wake up it's because i've been intended to mm. and if i wake up with breath i typically ask what am i supposed to do with this breath today mm. and um and i go out and do it it's powerful and i think for me for a person who struggled with wanting to be here any damn way Figuring out that your life has more to do with, with, with something other than you, yeah. that it's about purpose, that there is something that each of us can be doing every day is, is enough to keep us going. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, tell us, where can we find you? Where can we find you? On everything, like on Twitter, mm-hmm. Instagram, Facebook. It's all at more, M-O-O-R-E, Darnell, D-A-R-N-E, two L's. Okay. Um, and yeah, the book is available for pre-order everywhere. From Website? like Target to Best Barnes & Nobles to Amazon. It's all over the place. Nice. Um, but yeah. What's your website? DarnellLMore.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you guys heard it here first. Darnell Moore, the revolutionary, the changer. Um, I thank all of you for listening. This is your host, Sean Larry. Until next time, define who you are, follow your passion, speak your truth, be unapologetically you, and remember, always walk in your excellence. Walk in Your Excellence is recorded at Necessary Studios in New York City. Produced by myself, Maya, and Nikki. Follow us on Instagram at NEC Studios. I'm your host, Sean Larry. You can find me on Instagram at Formula22, at Walk in Your Excellence. Tag the hashtag Walk in Your Excellence and visit my website, www.seanlarry.com. That's S-E-A-N-L-A-R-R-Y. Define who you are, follow your passion, speak your truth, be unapologetically you, and always remember to walk in your excellence. Excellence.